Welcome to the Untold Civil War Podcast. Today I've got a big announcement. I'd like to give a big shout out to our newest sponsor, Civil War Trails. Yes, that's right. Civil War Trails has been working with communities since 1994 to share their stories and connect visitors with small towns and big stories across a network that now spans six states. Travelers look to trails to put them in the footsteps of the generals, soldiers, citizens, and the enslaved who found themselves in the midst of this civil war. Each and every site on the trail is generated at the grassroots level, where local interest begins the process. When communities approach Civil War trails, they start their work by bringing in local historians and descendants. This community-driven approach allows Civil War trails to tell history and share stories that oftentimes have never been heard before, which is perfect for the Untold Civil War podcast. This approach allows them to interpret, not commemorate or memorialize the events, people, and places of the most pivotal time in our nation's history. This is a really great mission, and it is an honor to have them as a sponsor. Links below will lead you to their website where you can learn more about this great organization. But now, let's get back to the episode. Ben Myers has just published a book called American Citizen. It's the writings of Captain George A. Brooks of the 46th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry. It's another one of those untold stories that deserves our attention. So take a sip from that canteen, lace up those brogans, and prepare to march into some untold civil war. Tonight, we have on the show Ben Myers, author of American Citizen, the Civil War Writings of Captain George A. Brooks, 46th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry. Raised in PA, Myers loved for local and family Civil War history is what inspired him on this endeavor. His writings have appeared in the Civil War Times and military images, as well as online at 46regiment.org. So this is his first book, which I am very happy to have a copy and I've enjoyed reading and I'm almost at the end of it. Uh, we are here to discuss it, of course. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. All right. I mean, we sort of talked a little bit about it before we started recording here, but uh, uh, let's get into it. Can we talk about when the Civil War bug first bit you? Yeah, we, we all have that story, right? Uh, so I was pretty young. I was maybe about 10, and uh, I grew up about 40 minutes from Gettysburg. So it was always, you know, I'd been there a few times growing up. And then when I was around 10, we did a unit in school about the Civil War, and they actually brought in some reenactors to school. Uh, and I thought, you know, the uniforms and the equipment was so cool. And so I, I kind of asked my parents, I wanted to learn more. They started taking me down to Gettysburg pretty regularly. And I also sort of uh, ended up, my one of my relatives ended up moving up with us. I don't know the technical term for what she was, but she was sort of like a great, great, great aunt, I think. But her grandfather had been in the Civil War. Uh, and she told me what she knew about him, he being my ancestor. And I think that's really what hooked me on sort of digging deeper and learning more and ultimately what led to me writing a book. I think what's interesting about it is that you actually professionally, you are not in the history field, right? So this is something you've no. been continuing on the side sort of as a hobby and a, a true passion, right? Yeah, exactly. I started researching this book in high school, actually. So it followed me through college, <laughs> through my wow. early career, um, through, you know, over half of my life now. Fantastic. And so where is the tie in? How do you find Captain George Brooks? I know there's like that slight family tie in, but like, uh, could you explain for our listeners? 
Right. So I was talking about my distant aunt and her grandfather, who is my great, great, great grandfather. And as I, I was looking into sort of what his service was, um, she hadn't met him. He died um, when she was about eight months old, but she knew a few stories and she knew that whatever had happened to him during the Civil War, it had really deeply affected him. Her father, who did know him and apparently was the only person that he told his stories to and you know, st swore into secrecy, he never divulged any specifics, but he basically let on like, this, the war was really difficult for him. He lived with it for the rest of his life. There were certain things like he damaged the bottom of his feet and he lost the tip of a finger at Gettysburg, but there, were, there weren't really any specifics. So I wanted to learn more. And back then it was even hard to kind of find out what regiment he was in because this stuff wasn't online. And so, you know, after finding that, uh, I was just kind of researching general information about the 46th Pennsylvania. And I came across uh, information about the diary of Captain Brooks, who was his commanding officer. That instantly got my attention because my ancestor had named his firstborn son Brooks Boyer. And we knew it wasn't a family name. And I knew like, okay, if this was his commanding officer, he named his son after this guy, obviously. There's no way that was just a coincidence. And I thought, okay, this Captain Brooks must've been somebody I'm going to go find out what's in his diary. And let's get into that. I mean, so you, you find out about Brooks, find out about his diary and you want to get into that. What did you find out about Brooks and his early life and just before the, the Civil War? What do we know about Brooks? I think most people uh, would consider Brooks a failure before the Civil War. He really had not had a uh, very successful run in his uh, chosen vocation, which was a publisher. He had built, a fair, it seems, a fairly successful business uh, starting in 1858 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And through his work as a publisher, he ends up meeting another publisher in town named Theodore Schaefer. And Theodore Schaefer has a daughter that Brooks ultimately ends up having a really tumultuous love affair with, the letters from which compose the first two chapters of the book. Things do not go well in this love affair, and uh, Theodore Schaefer really goes from liking Brooks professionally to basically hating him personally. And um, Brooks alludes in his letters to Schaefer basically ruining his business and slandering him um, to the point that Brooks's friends recommend that he uh, basically go after Schaefer legally, but he decides not to do so because he's at this point married to Emily Schaefer's daughter. So there's also an economic slump around this time uh, in Harrisburg. At that point was a really uh, agricultural area, uh, depended a lot on the farming economy. And so money is not coming into Brooks's business. His reputation is kind of in shambles and the business goes under. So Brooks ends up spending uh, the two years right before the war traveling around. He goes to Pittsburgh first. He then goes to Philadelphia. Uh, he ends up in Washington, D.C. right before Lincoln's inauguration. And the entire time, he's looking for work. Um, he's trying there, you know, there's a bunch of other publishers in the cities too, that are looking for work. And so the pay is bad and the rents are high and his wife is unhappy because she's still living with her parents. Uh, and he can't really afford the lifestyle that she wants. So things are deteriorating in that respect. And, uh, when his son comes along in 1860, he really barely spends any time with his son before the civil war, before he enlists. And, he ends up, you know, enlisting in the army as a private in the 25th Pennsylvania Infantry in April of 1861. 
it really seems I you don't get the impression from his writings that it was any sort of grand patriotic gesture. I'm sure it wasn't, you know, on some level, but uh, it was also the first study work he had had in a really long time. And he quickly, you know, is promoted to sergeant, and that experience is really what um, leads to his involvement with the 46th. How does he get involved with the 46? How does the 46 Pennsylvania get its start in, in the war? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of these guys were off for three months regiments, and they came home in August of 1861. Obviously, the war was not going to be over quite as soon as they thought, and many of them go off to either join other regiments or help recruit other regiments. And in Brooks's case, he started gathering guys to uh, form a company, and he pulls together um, some of his former comrades from the 25th Pennsylvania, um, some of his friends from Harrisburg, uh, and then he kind of reaches out to the local community. For instance, my ancestor was in a local militia group just outside of Harrisburg, and they were drilling early in the war, interestingly enough. Apparently they were uh, instructed by a woman. There's writings to that effect in local histories. And um, he kind of cobbles together all these guys and he shows up to Camp Curtin, which is just getting its start at this point. He doesn't have enough men to form a full company. So he goes in with another friend who's trying to form a company. They put all their guys together and they end up with about a hundred and they muster in as company D of 46 Pennsylvania. So how does he become the captain? Uh, how does that work out? Some units would vote. Uh, some of it was based on finances. Uh, in his case, he uh, recruited slightly more men than his friend. And so um, he becomes the captain and his friend becomes first lieutenant. When we speak about this company that he's raised, I know you mentioned how your ancestor used to be part of the militia. What sort of guys were really filling out this company? I mean, were they farmers? Were they you know, factory workers? What type of guys are we looking at? It was really a hodgepodge. Um, I've done a lot of research on uh, the muster rolls for the company. Um, there's actually, uh, folks go to my website, there's an online presentation that looks at the different messes within Company D. The messes being a subset that the soldiers formed of the company. And Captain's, Captain Brooks's records, there are records of these messes, which was something the military did not record. So it's kind of an interesting look at how the men grouped themselves within the company. But that information really lets us look at who they were. And he pulled together uh, a lot of, it was a lot of farmers. There were also a lot of tradesmen being from Harrisburg. There was some industry in Harrisburg uh, and all along the Susquehanna River at that time. The company was primarily German being, you know, from central Pennsylvania. The other companies in the regiment uh, from different parts of the state were primarily Irish. Um, there was a good mix of like German and Irish companies. And in the book, it goes through the uh, hostility between these companies based on where they hailed from. And it goes so far as uh, at one point, an Irish private shoots one of the uh, German officers and kills him. And there's quite a bit of, you know, inter-regiment drama surrounding this, understandably. Um, but yeah, for a good time, it seemed like the... Uh, from things the soldiers were writing, it seemed like the 46 had a pretty tumultuous start where until they really were sort of um, solidified as a fighting unit and had been in several battles, um, they weren't getting very along very well as a regiment. It's kind of interesting because that's what people talk about in the military, even today, how it's, you know, every everyone from all walks of life can find themselves in the military. And then, you know, you have that New Yorker who has to make friends with that Texan or whatever the case may be today, 
Um, so you sort of have the similar things happening uh, back during the Civil War in those units, and you see that clearly in the um, 46. How about Brooks? What was his experience in those early days as captain trying to maintain this unit and prepare it for its first engagement? Yeah, so I mean, he had experience, what, all of five months experience as a sergeant at that point. And so he went into this uh, and was responsible for training these guys with very little experience of his own. But he seems to have done, a, from what I've read, he seems to have done a pretty good job of it. He obviously, you can tell from his writings that he really cares about the well-being of his men. And he's very, he's very studious. He's very well-educated. Um, he makes comments about making sure that he goes to uh, sort of the, the training meetings that they have from higher command. And he seems to be a pretty good disciplinarian. Uh, when he has trouble with the men, he, he makes comments about having to discipline them. You know, he was kind of, he was in the, in the position that a lot of guys were at this point where they weren't by any means professional soldiers. And of course, they had absolutely no idea what they were preparing their soldiers for. And the 46, you know, gets a really, really awful baptism by fire, first at First Winchester, second at Cedar Mountain, and they go on to fight for the rest of the war. So I think, you know, it really seems apparent that he did the best he could. I think that he certainly had a positive impact on them. And I think his, my perception of his legacy is that he helped train these guys who would go on to win the war. They were the foundation of this regiment that served for all four years, that over you know 1,700 men served in. Um, and these, these initial months of training, those guys were going on to be officers uh, and non-coms later in the war. I'd like to take a quick moment here to mention one of our partners, the Gentleman's Box. It's style delivered. This monthly subscription box delivers fashion accessories to your doorstep to help you make the right impression, from ties to socks to cufflinks. Please use the link below to sign up today, and you'll be supporting the show at the same time at no extra cost to you. So let, let's talk about that uh, rude awakening that these guys get when they finally see the big elephant. So when did this happen? So their first combat was at First Winchester, which is, in a, I guess, not an often discussed battle. That's why we're on the Untold but, Civil War, you know. Right, right. Yes, this is this is we're getting into old untold territory, I think. But um, they they have been pretty much languishing along the CNO Canal for the winter of 1861 into 1862, and then down in the Shenandoah Valley in the spring of 1862. And they're bored. They want to get into action as met, as met, most regiments did at this point. And they get caught up in uh, basically the the beginnings of the legend of Stonewall Jackson, right? He's already started his reputation, but now he's really solidifying it. And they're going to come back to fight against Stonewall Jackson basically until he's killed. They're, they're actually, this is a total aside, but the 46th is actually very close by when he's killed at Chancellorsville to the point that an officer from the 46th writes an article claiming he killed Stonewall Jackson, which not true, but they were very close. So anyway, back to uh, back to the valley in 1862. At this point, their their commanding officer, uh, General Banks, had advanced pretty far south into the Shenandoah Valley, and um, he was exposed. And Jackson pretty handily figures this out and goes after him. So the, the long story short is they're involved in um, a very hectic retreat up the valley to Winchester, and they decide that at Winchester they are going to make their stand. Uh, and they entrench south of the town. And the next morning, uh, this is their, you know, their first battle, and it doesn't, it doesn't go very well. They, they, by all accounts, perform pretty well. 
Brooks writes a very lengthy account about his involvement, and they they basically run into trouble because the other side of the Union forces collapse, and the wing that Brooks is on is forced to fall back through town, and they end up retreating the entire way to Williamsport and crossing the Potomac uh, into safety. So it's kind of, it's a pretty embarrassing affair. It has a pretty a pretty large effect on the war at this point because Washington is so shaken up by this really unexpected advancement um, and defeat that they end up taking away some troops from McClellan on the peninsula. And so that kind of changes the plan for Richmond. And I mean, I think, you know, you can, you can play what ifs all day, but if McClellan had had more tr troops outside of Richmond at that point, maybe he would have actually, you know, done something and been successful. And so it, it just kind of causes this moment of uncertainty. And they, they don't take huge losses. The 46 doesn't take huge losses uh, in this battle, but um, they have a few men killed. And it's, I think it's mostly a rude awakening for them for what, what they're in for. Brooks publishes a very lengthy uh, account of their involvement in the battle. He writes it in his diary first, and then he ends up sort of cleaning it up and formatting it. And he sends it off to the Harrisburg newspaper, the Harrisburg Telegraph. And he would do this, he would write to the newspaper fairly frequently at this point. And so he would, you know, people wanted to hear from their soldiers in the field. They wanted to know what was going on. Communications via letters were slow sometimes. And so he has this, this really good writing ability and puts it to use, um, letting folks back home know what's going on. And so you get this really great account of First Winchester that uh, has been published in part in a good number of other histories, but the actual newspaper article that he wrote, he often signed them just soldier. And so the association between his identity and these newspaper articles that he sent home, I was one, the first or one of the first to establish, certainly it had never been published before. So that's the, the sor sort of short history of how I ended up finding some of his, his sources in the newspaper. Well, that was something I actually wanted to ask you about is this relationship with the paper, because he does seem to write the paper a lot. You know, I don't imagine that all soldiers just feel like writing the newspaper, but he definitely wrote the newspaper quite a bit. How did that relationship kind of get a start? Do we know? Right. No, we don't actually know. Um, there's no account anywhere of him being asked to write home or volunteering to do so. He just kind of shows up first as a member of the 25th Pennsylvania and then as the, in the 46th. He was very socially connected in Harrisburg. And so I think it, you know, one could, could, could conclude that he was probably asked by someone to write home just, you know, to keep his own friends updated as to his whereabouts, but it served the greater purpose of the, the whole community. And of course, after that engagement, they move on to uh, Cedar Mountain, correct? Right. So they end up back going down into the Shenandoah Valley um, and they spend a very hot and miserable summer, uh, as anyone who has experienced a Virginia summer uh, can attest to. And by this point, uh, from Brooks's writings, you can tell that he's He's kind of had it with this war thing. Um, he's been, you know, away from home for quite a while now, almost a year. He is thinking about his friend has offered to write him a letter asking for a promotion for him, um, that he might be the colonel of a new regiment being formed up. And at first, kind of in early June, he says, no, I, I want to stay with the 46th. 
And then by the time he's kind of sick of sitting around in Virginia, by the end of July, he's decided that he wants to move forward with this and see if he can be promoted to a new regiment. So before that can happen, um, things start to kind of uh, heat up in Virginia. And um, once again, uh, they're in sort of an exposed state down near Culpeper, Virginia. And uh, Jackson seizes the opportunity to move against the Union forces and they end up meeting near a mountain called Cedar Mountain. And the resulting battle is, uh, it's one of those ones sort of like Shiloh where the ferocity was early enough in the war that the ferocity was really surprising to people. It's, I think it's somewhat unfortunate that Cedar Mountain is not better known because it's, I think it's really showing part of that evolution from uh, sort of an orderly Napoleonic war to just absolutely savage fighting. And so what happens is um, the 46th along with their brigade decides to charge Jackson's line and they make a charge uphill with inflating artillery fire from in front of them and also uh, the side of Cedar Mountain, they're getting lobbed from the side and they end up actually breaking Jackson's line. They surprise uh, the Confederates so much that the line actually breaks and they end up running into basically the backs of Confederate regiments because they get behind them kind of a worst case scenario. And it very quickly goes to absolutely brutal hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Clubbed muskets, bayonets, rocks. Keep in mind that, you know, these guys had only been in combat once before, and now they're going to hand-to-hand -to -hand close quarters in the woods. And they basically, they break Jackson's line. They're about to force the remaining line back when AP Hill arrives and reinforces Jackson. And so Jackson ultimately wins the day but not before the 46 suffers 50% casualties. So they leave about half of their men on the field, either killed, wounded, or missing. Uh, Captain Brooks is wounded in both ankles and all of the officers in the 46 are either wounded or killed and leave the field shortly thereafter. Brooks with such wounds actually ends up in the hospital, right? To be treated? No, he uh, apparently wasn't bad enough that he needed to be hospitalized. Um, and he heads home to Harrisburg uh, to okay. convalesce. And part of this was also um, that he, he primarily served as the chief recruiter for the regiment, um, certainly for his company. And that was part of his newspaper thing too. He would write the newspaper to try to get, get new recruits. So part of his going home to recover was also, um, they knew they you know, pretty much immediately needed new soldiers to fill the ranks because they had taken so many casualties. So he does some of that as well. He, he gets a bit of a break, but, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong if I'm not remembering this correctly, but he has this loyalty to his unit. And even though he was you know, injured, he does come right back uh, to join in the Antietam campaign. Yeah. So he, he spends a little time in Harrisburg. You, I mean, you have to imagine, he's just been through this absolutely horrific battle. He's wounded. He hasn't spent that much time with his family, his wife and his, his son in many years, um, but Lee is starting his invasion of Maryland um, and he just ultimately decides that he's going to go back uh, and he joins them um, a few days before the Battle of Antietam. This show is not possible without our patrons on Patreon. I want to thank all of you who have already signed up. For those of you who haven't, please consider it 
as my patrons receive an advance notice on all interviews, and depending on their tier, they are able to submit their own questions to the experts. Even greater future benefits exclusive to Patreon patrons are in the works. So please check out the link in the show notes. And what happens at Antietam? That this is the one of the biggest battles of the Civil War here. So the and the forty six is taking part here. So how do they end up at Antietam? The forty six, um, kind of my theme here is that they are often overlooked in the discussions of battles, um, and Antietam is no exception. So they go in uh, after Hooker in support of what's going on in the cornfield, and they spend the morning pretty much advancing very slowly, frustratingly slowly, as they're listening to what's going on in the cornfield. They're taking artillery hits, they're standing there, they're waiting, the wounded are starting to flow back past them. They're really getting a sense of, you know, the veterans kind of knew, okay, we're, we're in for it now. But they had also been joined um, within the past several weeks by three fresh Pennsylvania regiments. And these regiments were incredibly large. They carried about 700 men each at a time when the 46 have been cut down to about 100 guys. That's how many they took in at Antietam. And the other veteran regiments, uh, the 28th New York that was with them was down to about 60. And the, um, I think it's a, I, I may have to go back and check this when you edit. It's the 5th Connecticut or the 10th Maine, 5th Connecticut. The 5th Connecticut uh, was down to about 300. So the veteran regiments with this brigade are very small. And they have three regiments of 700 men that have never been under fire. They've received very little drilling. And they're all just standing there, waiting, listening to what's going on in the cornfield. So when they finally advance, um, they deploy toward the Eastwoods. And it's decided that the veteran regiments are going to basically act as a guide for the new Pennsylvania regiments. And... Unfortunately, there's another complication because uh, the 12th Corps commander at the time, General Mansfield, this was his, he'd just been assigned to the 12th Corps. This was his first combat assignment. And he actually had a very good instinct in that he was afraid the new regiments would break and run. So part of his way to sort of combat this was to keep all of his regiments um, really closely compacted in this brigade, get them really close together. And um, their division commander, General Williams, was actually very very adamant in saying, we need to get them, we need to maintain wheeling distances, we need to get them ready and deployed, um, or we're gonna have trouble deploying them under fire, right? But Mansfield does not, he wants to keep them clustered. So by the time they're actually deploying into the East Woods, the worst case scenario has kind of occurred. They're all bunched up, they don't have wheeling distances, they're not very well drilled, right? So they, they're already shaky. And so the 46th, the 20th New York, and uh, the 5th Connecticut all get into line pretty easily. They're immediately taking uh, some skirmish and sniper fire from the Eastwoods, and they begin firing back. But now they're trying to get these new Pennsylvania regiments onto line. And partially due to the sniper fire, a lot of officers in these regiments are getting hit. So some of the officers in the new regiments uh, are wounded, which causes even more trouble. And as they're trying to deploy uh, the 128th Pennsylvania into the lower edge of the cornfield, their colonel and lieutenant colonel are both injured. And they just absolutely devolve into a panic, right? And so at this point, 
the 46th Pennsylvania and the 28th New York, which are kind of act, trying to act as an anchor for the 128th, uh, they send over what few officers they have. And these officers are trying to get the new troops into line, which they eventually accomplish. But it's some at some point during this where you can imagine, you know, Captain Brooks was the only captain present with the regiment that day. Um, so he probably would have gone over to help them. And it's somewhere in this sort of mess of woods and soldiers and uh, guys getting shot that Captain Brooks is uh, shot in the head and he dies instantly. We don't have an exact count or anything like that that really, you know, anyone wrote or said that's when they saw Brooks go down or when exactly Brooks go down. But we do know what happens at some point uh, during this time period, right? Right. Yeah. So there's no, unfortunately, there's no firsthand account of when he's killed. Their involvement in uh, the Eastwoods was so quick. And we do know that he was killed in the Eastwoods because of his uh, pension file. Um, and this is also where they're primarily engaged in Antietam. So he was killed during this period, but uh, exactly what that looked like is lost to time. After he's killed, what happens to the 46? Yeah, so they, um, they go on to serve for the rest of the war. They serve at Chancellorsville, I had mentioned earlier, where uh, one of their officers claimed to have uh, shot Stonewall Jackson himself. Um, they then go up there at Gettysburg and serve on Culp's Hill, which is another undiscussed aspect of a battle. And then uh, they're eventually transferred out west, and they end up participating in the Atlanta campaign, Sherman's March to the Sea, and then the Carolinas campaign. So they really, I mean, they they serve out all four years um, and really see a lot of a lot of different stuff. I I, am, I don't wonder anymore how my ancestor damaged the bottom of his feet because he marched thousands of miles yeah. during his service. You know, I always make this joke was when I was in basic training and, you know, we were struggling to march 10 miles with our rucksacks on. We had a, an old drill sergeant who would tell us back in the day, you know, Civil War soldiers would cross states. So I don't know why you're complaining about 10 miles, you know. So, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure, there's there's no doubt why uh, your ancestor definitely suffered from uh, injuries to the feet. There's no doubt about it. Uh, going on from there, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is I know people say when they write sort of a biography, they sort of develop a relationship with the subject. And so I want to know, if, are there any like anecdotes or little things that stood out to you after really getting to know uh, Captain Brooks? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I got to know him very well uh, because I, you know, I transcribed his diary and over 80 letters that he wrote to his wife and friends and the newspaper articles um, over the span of, I don't know, maybe about eight years. It was quite, it, was, it took quite a long time. And the thing that strikes me about him is that he was very eloquent and forthcoming in his writings, and you really get to know him from what he writes. And when I was when I was thinking about putting the book together, I made the decision to include almost all of his personal correspondence before the war, because I think it gives readers a real sense of who he was. That's sort of the most personal things that he wrote, of course. And those are the those are the things where his sense of humor really comes across. He, you know, some of some of the his lighter anecdotes. Um, I think you could probably consider him uh, a bit of a of a ladies' man. Um, and he would, wherever he was, it didn't matter where he was. It was before the war, during. He was always socializing and finding women to talk to, um, and spending evenings, you know, in social company. And I think he. It impresses me how he was able to sort of 
enjoy parts of the war um, when so many bad things were happening, right? And he definitely, I mean, he, at one point, one of the funnier things, at one point, he, um, they had to send home all of their excess baggage, right? So early in the war, they were taking books with them and, you know, desks and all this kind of stuff. And eventually the army was like, okay, guys, we, we need to move more quickly. You got, you have to send home all this personal stuff. And so he, he writes home to his wife and he says, you know, I'm sending home my things. You, you might read some things in my diary, but I don't want you to think that it was anything negative um, or anything bad that I always right, behave right. myself. And it's, it, it's one of those things just made me think, oh, geez, George, like, <laughs> I can only imagine his, his wife, you know, reading this stuff from home. But yeah, on a more, on a more serious note, I think the story that struck me the most um, is when the first man under his command dies. And they're at this point um, guarding um, a dam along the CNO Canal in the winter of 1862. Um, it's this really isolated area. It's still really isolated. You have to kind of hike a little bit to get there. And one of his soldiers is guarding the canal and he slips on some ice and he falls into one of the canal logs and drowns because, you know, you can imagine it has all that heavy gear on. It's cold, it's winter. Um, the canal locks are actually probably larger than you would imagine. Yeah, he, he dies fairly quickly and Brooks from his writings appears just absolutely devastated at losing this guy. And he, you know, he takes... He goes through all this trouble to make sure he's properly buried. He writes his parents. Um, the night that the soldier dies, he writes in his journal about it. Uh, he includes some poetry, I believe, by Wadsworth. And it's just this really touching uh, example of how much he cared about the guys he was commanding. And I think it was that that really made me think, okay, I can, I can understand why my ancestor would name his kid after this guy, because he was... He seems like he was a pretty good officer, pretty good commander. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's also this other connection to it as well. The fact that he was the main recruiter. And so, you know, he was the guy who got some of these guys like, okay, here, sign the dotted line. You know, you're going to be all right. You're going to be in my company. Don't worry. And, you know, to lose somebody, it's probably very personal. Right. Yeah. And it's always, I mean, I've always wondered, he doesn't, so he stops his diary a few days before Cedar Mountain. And you can imagine, I mean, they're at that point, they're moving a lot. They're in this terrible battle. He's wounded. So he's, he's not writing anymore. But I was, I was really disappointed to not have any of his thoughts after Cedar Mountain, because I can't even imagine how difficult that would have been for him if losing one guy was that upsetting. And now he's lost half of them. Right, right. And maybe that is why he stopped writing. Maybe he just didn't want to write about it. Right. Anymore, yeah. You know, uh, who knows? Talking about his writings, um, something I wanted to talk to you about, because as we talked about, you know, there's these letters, uh, there's letters to the newspaper, his diary. That's a lot of stuff to go through to produce this, this book. Uh, how did you find all of this stuff? Right. So as I mentioned at the beginning, it started with the diary and that was and is still held at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and at the time, it was not digitized. It is now. You can go online and you can pull up the scans of it. So I actually went down there and I took a picture of each page of it. And then I transcribed that. And by the time I did that, I thought, okay, well, I can publish just his diary as a book. Done. And that's when I realized that in his diary, he was saying things about writing to the newspaper. 
And I thought, well, maybe that still exists. So I went and looked for that and I found that. He had written, you know, quite a number of articles and sort of in some, some research about something else, I ended up, long story short, found someone's information online, thought they were probably a descendant of his. And I called them, which is very unlike me as a you know, millennial to do uh, with avoiding phones. But I called right. them and I explained who I was and what I was looking for. And they were very thrown off, right? Um, and they said, no, we don't, we don't know anything about him. Um, and I thanked them and that was that. About 20 minutes later, they called me back and they said, you know, we're, we're sorry, your call surprised us. We, we know who he is and we have a bunch of his stuff. And it turned out that they had like his wife's wedding dress, pictures, uh, and his personal correspondence from before the war and during the war. Wow. And that was over 80 letters. And they ended up, um, I was in college at the time, and they ended up putting them all in a box and they mailed them to me, um, which was very uh, anxiety producing for me, but they, they showed up at my college apartment. And so I spent a good part of college reading these letters and scanning them and typing them up. And at that point, I realized that I had a much bigger book than I had planned, right? Because I had all of these sources from him, some of them overlapped. So there was, you know, I needed to introduce some sort of a timeline to it. And that's when I really started looking for the context to surround what he was writing. So I was consulting, you know, modern histories of the war, um, other firsthand accounts from the 46th and other regiments he served with. Um, and that's, you know, that's all that went into the book. Fantastic. I'm sure you were probably maybe one of the few uh, out there who uh, had such letters ever delivered, like Civil War letters delivered to a, a college dorm or college apartment. <laughs> um, it was very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's why I tell people, please uh, don't throw out everything in the attic, you know, definitely keep that stuff, you know, or donate it because uh, there are some real treasures that people find from, that's left over from their ancestors and stuff like that, that we historians, you know, would love to get our hands on. So. Yeah, definitely. Sure. One of the things that surprised me about Brooks was that no one had really found his story before, right? So I was starting working on this around 2007 or 2008, and his journal has been included in a lot of modern histories, but it had never been published in entirety. Um, and certainly no one had, you know, found the letters before perhaps the newspaper articles. It, yeah, it was very surprising to me. Um, and once I was kind of onto the trail, it sort of felt like I didn't have any choice but to tell the story because how many, you know, how many unpublished accounts of early world line officers are out there at this point? And certainly, I mean, he gave his life for our country. His story deserves to be told. Absolutely. And what I would say is that, like I said, I haven't finished it yet. Almost done, though, and I, I've, I've enjoyed every bit of it. It is a great book. How can people get a copy? Can you tell them how they can learn more about you and that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. So it's available from most booksellers. Um, you can get it on Amazon via Amazon Prime, uh, or there is a Kindle version. You can also find me online. My website is Ben Myers, that's M-Y-E-R-S author.com. Um, and that has links to you know all my publications. And then we also have, uh, with a fellow researcher, um, a page for the 46th Pennsylvania Infantry on Facebook. Um, and that's kind of where we share uh, information as we find it. To date, I think we've identified 
60 or 70 photos of men from the regiment, pretty high number. And there's a good number of descendants and uh, folks like that on there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm definitely going to leave uh, links down below in the show notes for people who uh, want to get access to your book. I know they will, but thank you again for sharing this untold story with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode while you drove one of the Civil War Trail's driving routes, waiting in the dentist's office, scrounging up a meal in Andersonville, attempting to escape the walls of Camp Douglas, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I'd also like to use this moment to thank our sponsor, The Badge Maker. He is the creator of all those authentic core badges, Civil War ID discs, Civil War pipes, Civil War matchboxes, all those personal items that take your Civil War impression up a notch. So please use the link in the show notes, go check out his website, and when you do, tell him that you were sent there by the Untold Civil War podcast. Greatly appreciated. Also, please give us a five-star review on iTunes, if so inclined, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and tune in next time for our next episode.